Ayer nació un caracol, un caracol, un caracol, un caracol de guerra. Hello and welcome to the Zapatista podcast, lessons and stories from Chiapas. This podcast is brought to you by the Galway Feminist Collective and Promedios Mexico. This podcast series gives a general introduction to the Zapatista movement of Mexico to those not so familiar with their struggle in the light of their first European tour this summer 2021. We want to give folks in Ireland and Europe an insight into the Zapatistas through interviews with some of those who have worked closely with movement. A quarter of a century on, after the Zapatista uprising of 1994, we want to retrace some of the steps that their struggle has taken on its long and steady road to autonomy, sharing their learnings and obstacles, but above all their determination and creativity to make other worlds a reality. Zapatistas are a Mexican revolutionary indigenous movement that govern many autonomous zones over an extensive region within Chiapas, the southernmost state of Mexico. Zapatistas don't like to be pigeonholed, but they are most certainly anti-capitalist and anti-patriarchal. Some say they are libertarian socialists, yet they have anarchists and communists, Catholics and atheists among them. They practice direct democracy and traditional indigenous ways of organizing. On January 1st, 1994, the day NAFTA came into effect, which is the North American Free Trade Agreement signed by the US, Mexico and Canada, Zapatista women and men led an uprising to halt the ever-increasing death grip of colonialism and its legacy, which has been centuries of poverty and inequality, racism and exploitation. Following the uprising and broken accords by the Mexican government, Zapatistas turned to creating their own autonomy and practicing self-determination. This summer 2021, a delegation of Zapatistas and representatives from various indigenous groups in Mexico are traveling in Europe as part of a world tour. Their European tour coincides with the 500 year anniversary of the fall of Tenochtitlan, present day Mexico City. From July to October, the delegation is meeting with activists throughout Europe. The meetings are meant to horizontally strengthen and multiply the resistances in each place. Once again, the Zapatistas will appeal to our creative consciousness, to see past the reality that Europe and the minority world lives, and to open our eyes to how the majority world survives. The first Zapatista representatives have already disembarked in Spain. Among them, a transgendered woman is helping unfold a massive campaign, urging Europe to wake up to a new dawn and to create other worlds together, beyond capitalism. Hello, I'm Nancy Serrano. Welcome to the Zapatista podcast, Stories and Lessons from Chiapas. Let's begin this episode on education with the story of the noise and the silence, written by Subcomandante Marcos in his book, Don Antonio. The story of the noise and the silence. Once there was a moment in time, when time was not counted. In that time, the greatest gods, the ones who give birth to the world, were walking as gods do. They were dancing. 
In that time, there was much noise. Voices and screams could be heard from everywhere. Much noise and nothing could be understood. And that noise was not there for anything to be understood, but it was noise so nothing could be understood. In the beginning, the first gods believed that the noise was music and dance, and quickly they chose a partner and began to dance. But it so happened that the noise was not music nor dance, it was only noise, and one could not dance to it and be happy. And then the greatest god stopped. To listen attentively, to know what that noise they were hearing wanted to say. But nothing could be understood because it was, after all, just noise. And since one could not dance to noise, the first gods, the ones who gave birth to the world, could no longer walk because they danced as they walked. And so they stopped and were saddened by not walking because the greatest gods, the first ones, were avid walkers. And one of the gods tried to walk, to dance with the noise, but it could not be done. They were out of step, bumping into one another in their path. They would trip and fall on trees and rocks, and these gods would hurt themselves greatly. Then the gods searched for a silence that would orientate themselves again. But they could not find the silence anywhere. And the greatest gods became desperate because they could not find the silence. They could not find the path. And so, in an assembly of the gods, they came to an agreement. They struggled mightily in the assembly because all of the noise. Finally, they agreed that each one of them would search for a silence that would lead them to the path. And so the agreement made them happy but one could not hardly notice because of the noise. And then each god began searching for a silence so they could find themselves. They began to look to the sides, but found nothing. They could find nothing above and there was nothing below. And since there was nowhere else to find a silence, they began searching within themselves. There they sought silence, and there they found it. And it was there where the great gods, the first gods, the ones who gave birth to the world, found their path. Vienen por nosotros, nosotros, nosotros. Vamos a defender lo que hemos construido.
Medellín. In this episode, I speak with Pedro Café from Schools for Chiapas. Pedro talks about why the Zapatistas decided to organize their own educational systems and how they took their first steps forward. He tells us about the challenges to creating their own schools and how this has empowered Indigenous women in particular. We learn about the importance and the complexity of what autonomous education means to preserving Indigenous ways of living and dismantling capitalism. Pedro shares his views on the effects of the pandemic on the Zapatista communities and what key lessons he has learned from his time with the Zapatistas. I was wondering if we could start with um, asking you about your first encounters with the Zapatista movement and what were your first impressions and thoughts? Okay, well, the, the first encounters actually were the day of the insurrection because the evening before I had been in a jacuzzi with a bunch of educators from Canada getting very, very drunk and pontificating about how insurrection was really possible in Mexico and the Indians were so oppressed and they were going to rise up and all of this fantasy in my brain. And then I woke up the next morning and it had happened. And I was like, oh, my God. And so we um, started getting the first communications from the Zapatistas and they were really different. They, they sounded and felt different than what we were used to. And some people had actually been in the Zocalo with little hand recorders, and we got that just a couple days later. So we actually heard the words of the of the compass in the in the Zocalo very quickly, and we also got it started getting these things on the. There was this weird new technology that was just breaking. It was called internet, and we got these messages from the Zapatistas, and there were lots of them. And they were very articulate and, and really exciting. So we actually massaged them into a, a street theater performance where we actually used the words that were in the comunicados to educate people about what was going on in Mexico. We had um, we had four different Marcos. One was a great big giant black guy and one was a little bitty beautiful um, Hollywood actress and some other people, four people that spoke the words. And we did that at, at street actions and in universities all over Southern California. And that was kind of how we first got started. That sounds really interesting. You took it straight to the streets. <laughs> and and from there, then you, you started taking some steps to to actually going out and, and meeting the movement yourselves. We did. We, 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 we called it, it was, the play was called Yo Soy Zapatista, I'm a Zapatista. And it was in the context of what we called internet theater, which had this weird sounds, you know, that you used to hear when the phone modems would connect to go. So we'd have that big loud on speakers in the street. And then we'd start talking from our scripts of what they said. It was pretty interesting because come, St. Patty's Day in March, we were doing, we did a really big performance and we promoted it quite um, extensively. So we were pretty startled the next week when we got this great big envelope with a cantifla stamp on it. So just for you listeners, um, Peter Mac mentioned cantinflas there. Uh, cantinflas is Mexico's most famous uh, comedian um, who actually appears in the, the film around the world in 80 days. And one of our flyers that was typed on the back 
that, you know, basically said, well, you know, there's about 30,000 olive green reasons that make it really hard for me to attend evening theater performances. But, you know, the fact that you're doing this up there in San Diego is pretty impressive because actors, actors equity and the union of Hollywood is really expensive. So maybe you should bring it down here to Chiapas because here we have lots of Zapatistas and we'd be glad to present it here and you won't have to pay union wages or anything. And just on and on and on, like bromeando, like making jokes and being silly with a lot of um, language, bilingual stuff that was really interesting. And, and, you know, the fact that somehow they knew that we were meeting in a high school that was the most southwestern high school in the U.S. in the River Valley of Tijuana and they knew we were there. They knew we were meeting and we were working on this play. And so when they said, come on down, we actually took them up on it by going to the first meeting of civil society with the Zapatistas in Guadalupe Tepeyac. And we tried presenting the play. The, the compas didn't like the play at all. It was way too bombastic and, you know, just, just too serious. Gradually, out of that, those experiences, we, we started to learn a little bit more about who the um, Zapatistas were. So they were a tough audience to please, but, um, but you got to know them. <laughs> so from, from those first contacts and the fact that you were, you were very interested in how they spoke and how they, their, their focus as a movement seemed to be different from there, you, you started building up um, your organization, um, or could you tell us a little bit about how you got started with Schools for Chiapas and helping indigenous schools there? Yeah, sure. We, um, I mean, basically, we had a few Europeans, a couple of Argentinians, and a handful of gringos that were working and preparing for this big meeting that was the first meeting in Oven that we went to, which was called the um, Encuentro por Humanidad y Encuentro de Nuevo Liberalismo, um, was also called the Intergalactic because the soup invited all the aliens to come. And so we were all waiting for spaceships the whole time. And we were very ready for the spaceships because we had these presentations that we were going to make. It was the first time we actually called ourselves Schools for Chapas. And we presented a proposal for building a, a school. We said, We'll get 25 people to come down and work in the summer, and we'll raise $5,000 for it. And um, everybody applauded, and they said, great, that's wonderful. And then um, about six months later, when they decided to move ahead with autonomous education, we were called back to Oventique, and basically we were introduced to the um, architectural team for the school that we had volunteered to work on. And I think as I mentioned the other day, they were all wearing these little white mini skirts and had really strong masculine legs. And just for you listeners, the white mini skirts of the architectural team that Peter was just referring to there is one of the traditional indigenous dresses that the men wear in one of the regions of Chiapas. And they didn't speak a word of Spanish and they didn't have any paper or pencil. So, but they had the architectural plans in their heads and there were 13 of them. 12 plus 1 told us how it was going to be, and it was going to be, you know, a, a dormitory for 250 boys and another dormitory for 250 girls and apartments for a couple dozen education promoters and a great big library and an internet satellite center and a, a kitchen 
and dining hall for all 500 students and teachers. And we were like listening to all this and we were kind of freaking because we said, hey, guys, you know, we, we said 25 people and $5,000. We didn't have 25 people and we didn't have $5,000. And they were talking about this absolutely absurd idea that somehow got into their brains. And, you know, at that point, Comandante David stepped forward and he's a very calming kind of guy. And I tend to be very excitable. I was very excited and freaking because I thought we'd been really clear, even though the language difficulties and the distance was really hard. But David said, look, if you guys can bring that those people here and bring some money, that'll be great. And if you bring a lot, it'll go a little bit faster. And if you just bring a little, it'll go a little bit slower. But this school is going to be a place where indigenous and non-indigenous children all over the world will work together and learn to save Mother Earth. And of course, they'll learn to understand and read Borges, but they'll also come to love Shakespeare and they will use the Internet in a way that has never been used before to save the planet and to figure out how we can move forward as, as humans. <laughs> and so at which point you got to shut up and just listen. So we just shut up and went with it. Wow. So they, they, they give you a tall order, but they, they had big visions. Well, out of curiosity, I'm just wondering, slowly but surely, did, did that school actually materialize? The school is there. You can see it if you, you go up to Oventique. Um, it's called ESRAS, the Escuela Secundaria Rebelde Autónoma Zapatista. And it was the first secondary school in Zapatista territory. When we showed up for that summer with $5,000 and 25 people, we did, in fact, get $5,000 and 25 people. And the first day we were there, the architectural team came back and said, oh, by the way, Every morning at dawn, one community is coming in with 30 skilled builders to work all day long, and that's going to happen seven days a week. And we really have a problem because we actually have way too many communities that want to send people. So could we perhaps have three communities come in with 90 people? At which point the construction guys flipped out and said, no, you can't have 90 people on a construction site. It won't work. So we went back to... 30 a day, and sure enough, all summer long, people would wake up about 2 or 3 in the morning, and they'd walk for 4 or 5 hours, often through really difficult territory, and they'd show up just before the sun comes up, and they'd work like dogs all day long. We'd try to, you know, our 25 people would try to work alongside them, and we, we could hardly keep up with them at all, to say nothing of they would always beat us in basketball before we would start at lunch and afterwards, before they went home. So that by the end of the summer, we figured that about 1,200 indigenous people had worked on the school. And people from 28 countries had come to volunteer for the school. And we actually had raised well over $30,000, which allowed us to build the dormitories and the first classrooms and a very rough housing for some of the education promoters. We did eventually come in with a library and internet center, and all those things have been built and can be seen there today. They definitely pulled it together. It sounds, well, just that one example sounds amazing. And uh, I think it. we've heard from a n number of different people just how strong the work ethic is anyway in Zapatista communities and 
how organized they are when they when they put their minds to it. So they always challenge us to do that. And could you tell us a little bit, the Zapatistas, well, they obviously decided once they were organizing their structures to put together their own educational system as well. And could you explain a little bit perhaps about how the indigenous communities in general, why they may have chosen this to do their own educational system with regards to how the Mexican public school system had served them previously? Yeah, well, when we were first starting in Oventique, we heard many, many stories from the elders, adults who were there, about their experiences in the official schools. And almost to a person, the experiences were very, very negative. They were not allowed to speak their languages. They were made fun of. There were many jokes made about their indigenous customs and costumes and and so forth. So the the growing up in those schools when they were children was a very painful experience. And so they came at making this alternate school system really with a great deal of anger and, and frustration was almost always present in the discussions. And as they set the the curriculum and decided, you know, what kind of... Um, mathematics would be done and what kind of agroecology and all those issues, which has really changed today because now 20 years later or 25 years later, almost everybody who is associated with a Zapatista school has in fact never even been to an indigenous, to a, a government school. They've heard about them. They know they're out there, but they don't have that personal anger and frustration that the early education promoters and students have because they've grown up in a revolutionary school system. And I think that's really one of the key reasons that they needed to start all over again with an autonomous system is that they really were talking about overthrowing capitalism and and making a very fundamental change in the way that, that indigenous communities relate to this, the government and the system and so forth. So the education was a continuation of their dedication to having new and original creative thoughts on how the world could be different and how you could make a world where all the worlds fit. Yeah, that, that sounds like it makes sense to really wipe, wipe the slate clean and be able to, to build from the ground up all their revolutionary dreams. And so you, you told us a little bit about that, um, the first secondary school that you got involved in, in helping to, to build. In the early years, how was it that the Zapatista began, the Zapatistas began organizing their, their learning centers in their communities? Well, obviously this first school started to take shape. And then how did, how did they start organizing in the wider regions? They, they did. And, you know, as I said previously, the the word desmadre is really very Zapatista and is something that has a a surprising resonance in in Mexico and in Zapatista territory. I mean, the idea that it really is a shitstorm and it, it's a creative mess that's really crazy and many things are coming from many directions. 
the first school, the one in Oventique, was pretty carefully thought through and, and had a lot of very skilled educators that were at its inception. And they took a long time training a staff. There was a thing called Nivelli, level, levelizing, levelizing the educational levels of um, about 250 kids and teachers and so forth. But after that, the energy enthusiasm of the communities and municipalities themselves for an alternative education really took over and schools started popping up all over the place. Everybody wanted a school. They wanted secondary schools. They wanted primary schools. They wanted training centers. They wanted hospital schools. They wanted all kinds of things. And so, and also groups from outside of Chiapas, from the University of Mexico, from other places started showing up with their own pedagogical ideas. And there was a, we brought in a lot of textbooks. There were a lot of reading of well-known educational figures like Pablo Freire and others. So it became a real, a real fast-moving issue. I mean, often they said, yeah, we don't, we, we might build a school, but then again, maybe our school will only meet under a tree. And when it, if it starts raining too hard, they'll run for a roof. But things started happening very quickly in many different languages because there were at that point there were five major centers of education, health, and sports and governance. And each one had a different range of languages. And so they had a whole lot of different educational ideas. So it was something that really rose up from the base of the Zapatista movement in a in a very very um, lively and, and creative manner. It sounds like a, a nice, healthy uh, melting pot for for all ideas to uh, to take shape. But everybody was able to get involved as well. You mentioned Paolo Freire there um, as one of the the texts and the methodologies that you brought to the table, as such, when you were discussing the schools and the methodologies. Well, Paolo Freire, the Brazilian educator would be one of the models of popular education that people would refer to. How did the Zapatistas um, like what they heard in terms of Paulo Freire? Well, you know, I mean, many of us were educators that were working there and were, in fact, quite enamored of, of Pablo Freire and his pedagogy of the oppressed. Um, so we pitched it and we brought books in and we talked a lot about it. And Zapatistas the Zapatistas were very respectful and very interested to hear about other people's experiences. But in some ways, the, the ideology, the methodology of Pablo Freire was not particularly appealing to them. I mean, particularly because, you know, in Brazil, he was very much, he was working in a colonial language with non-indigenous people and very much focused on literacy and how literacy is what opens the world up to people. And, you know, these people that we were working with, the Zapatistas, they remembered their grandparents and they knew their grandparents weren't literate. And yet they also knew that they weren't stones in the field that didn't have culture and didn't have stories and language and so forth. And in fact, they were fully realized human beings, despite the fact that they had not learned to read and write. And so they wanted to make sure that as the students came in, they were not teaching them to disrespect 
their ancestors or even, you know, their grandparents um, or even their parents sometimes who themselves were not literate, but were in fact the carriers of the culture and the the instigators of the um, of the Zapatista insurrection. So Pablo Freire was a little problematic. And I think we all, in the exchanges, we all learned a lot. You can see how much thought that they've, they gave it before ever knowing about Paulo Freire. Myself, I'd just be interested to know what other indigenous communities elsewhere <laughs> think, but, you know, that's for another day. So, you know, while you're forming methodologies with the Zapatistas, what, what become the, the main subjects that the schools decide to, to focus on as such? Part of the creative flux that was happening was very much focused on how to endorse indigenous culture and how to make that at the center of the curriculum. And there were probably two, the two most important things in that had to do with indigenous language because indigenous language was very important to them. The mother tongue was often split among several different languages in one classroom. And early on, they made a decision that every student in every classroom should always have a teacher who speaks their own mother tongue as their, as their mother tongue. So that often meant that the, the schools or the, the education authorities had to scramble around and find somebody that spoke Sotzil and somebody that spoke Celtal and somebody that spoke Tojolabal for one classroom. So there could easily be three teachers in a classroom so that those kids would be able to, you know, talk like mumbly and 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 not particularly articulate, but in the language that their mom and dad taught them. The other thing that was in addition to the language was the centrality of the milpa to the educational process. The milpa is a very ancient agricultural system often kind of referred to as squash, beans, and corn, although it also traditionally had amaranto and, and many other green plants that would bring nutrients in. But the milpa, they always said, a classroom is very important, and we're, we're happy if we can get out from under the tree into a classroom, but our biggest and best classroom is the milpa, is the cornfield, is being in the field and working. And so in Zapatista schools, from the very first, the kids were expected to get their hands in the dirt and get out there and actually learn to grow their own food and to prepare their own food so that they could keep themselves healthy um, in a way that their communities have learned to do over, you know, thousands of years. Well, I've heard, obviously, the, the main focus they have on the seasonal calendar and how their their school, their other school curriculum subjects work around whatever they need to do with the milpa and with the local traditions that they celebrate at different times of the year. In terms of their um, their literacy, well, but in terms of writing their languages, that must be a bit of a challenge. It, it, it is. The calendars are also a, a challenge. They're very deeply intertwined with the indigenous languages themselves because the calendar months and the days are part of the 20-base mathematical system of the Mayan people. 
so that learning, you know, we're used to a 10-based system and Mayan systems are mostly 20-based. So when kids are learning math, they have to learn two math systems. One, the math of their ancestors, which is the 20-based system, and the other from Europe, the 10-based system. It's particularly challenging for girls, in fact, because many times girls fall behind in math um, because they can't get the 10-based system, even though they're often weavers that are handling hundreds of threads and figuring out how to up and down the warp and the weave using a 20-based mathematical system, which is a completely different mathematical entity. So one of the early on things that we did was insist that, no, this ancient Mayan math is extremely important. And it is, in fact, the base of the mathematical system, even though official schools and many times the guys themselves didn't have it as strongly as the women had it. In addition, of course, they had all of the stories and all of the the legends and the myths and the background back to the Mayan Bible, the Popovu, which is in a, it's actually written in a Guatemalan Mayan language, but it has been translated into many Chapin languages. They also use the Christian Bible, which Bishop Ruiz, one of the big important bishops of Chapas, had translated into all the languages. And many Many people in the early Zapatista schools actually learned to read and write in Spanish using the Christian Bible in Bible study groups, and then took that information into learning how to read and write in their own languages, because the Bible was translated into all the languages. So they first broke the language or the reading code, usually in Spanish, and then went back and enjoyed the reading of the Christian Bible in their own language. It's really a problem in Zapatista schools because there are never enough books for everybody to have even one book, much less a library of books just to enjoy reading, much less a library of books in the three or four languages that are usually present in every school. So, you know, this this issue of having a hands-on active education, which lots of physical education, lots of art, lots of theater, lots of music, many musical instruments were really central from the beginning to the Zapatista education system and remain so today. Gosh, I think, I feel like we're only getting a a start of the layer of cultural diversity that really exists and how complicated that makes, but how used to just one dominant language and culture we are in the outside world, so to speak. Do, do they teach history at the Zapatista schools? Actually, history is one of those fields which is generally taken as social studies, and it includes history and geography and usually poetry and, and other things. And again, there have been five major centers or divisions within the state. Now there's 14 of these centers, and each one does it their own way. They're autonomous to a fault, and it can make you really crazy when you try to get your, a handle on it. But the important thing to notice is that as Zapatista education unfolds, it generally unfolds looking at the official system and then deciding, oh, the official system is all wrong. We're going to turn it completely upside down and go at it from the other direction, which they do. So that, you know, if they're doing a thing on kings and queens, 
in Europe, in official school, they turn it around and say, oh, well, there were kings and queens in Chapas, in, in Palinque, and they were the same kind of assholes as the kings and queens in Europe, and they're no better because they were Mayan than anybody else. So the kids themselves develop these ideas in really creative and powerful ways and unexpected ways of having gone, you know, they say desde abajo, from the bottom to the heart, right? And and it goes just like that. It starts out with an idea coming from you're oppressed and you're down below and you're going to fight your way to the surface. And then it comes out in the heart in emotion and, and in, in really powerful ideas that pop out of these little little children's mouths. I'm wondering about the participation of of women in the in the Zapatista autonomous schools and how it has evolved perhaps, well, obviously, since they started them. From the first, there was a, a major emphasis on gender equity and gender access, including men, women, and others that were talked about. Early on, it was very unusual for us to go walking back in the woods and walk for hours and end up in some little town somewhere sitting around with a bunch of grandmas and they say, yes, gays, lesbians, and everybody should have equal access to education. And so this was just a given that they started with. And they have done an amazing job over the years of including both lesbian, gay, and trans people in important roles, particularly within the education system, but also within the governmental systems and all of the various add-on systems that exist, such as agroecology and health, the, the places where people get education, perhaps not in a formal classroom setting, but after they finish the elementary school, and if they really like reading and books and all that kind of stuff, they go on and do secondary school. At that point, when they finish the secondary school, which is kind of like a junior high school, moving into high school and college level work generally happens in a variety of community organizations, usually organizations that are carrying out collective work in a particular work area, such as water systems or electricity or agroecology or driving, learning to drive a car, learning to run a taxi cab system. I mean, there are many having a, a cooperative of men or women that are making some product or going into the market and selling things. So there's many ways that people raise their education level, again, based in the milpa, Always at the beginning, the cornfield is where it all happens at. But then somebody has to make those grind up that corn every morning and somebody has to make it into tortillas. And you better believe that those little boys in the Zapatista elementary schools, they learn how to grind corn and they learn how to make tortillas, which their daddies never knew how to do. I, I, I think uh, I want to go to one of those schools. <laughs> you, you also mentioned a couple of ways where people obviously can then carry out different types of or progress their education in non-formal settings. So so what would be the options, like in brief, like after secondary? Do they have any other educational centers after second level, let's say? You know, that, that that's, that's a big question. A lot of people ask it. Early on, there was a lot of talk about a Zapatista University when we were starting up in Oventique. And we asked, I remember early on, some bigwigs, Zapatista bigwigs that, were they going to be willing to join the SEP, the um, system of public education in Mexico? 
And what, what they said I thought was very instructive because what they said is, well, of course, we're Mexican and we're as Mexican as anybody else. And we have the same right to the resources of the nation as every Mexican has. And so a public education system is something that we want and we support. And we don't believe that education should be private. It should be a public right for everybody, but only if it's an education which is democratic and which is just. And so far, this education system of Mexico is neither one of those things. It's, it's not, it doesn't tell the truth. It tells lies. And it teaches people to be dependent and helpless in front of the capitalist system. So we have to create our own education system, which turns everything on its head and demands the resources of the nation because, of course, Mexico is a very wealthy country and there's no reason that they should only be getting crumbs off the table, but they should be able to have the resources of the most powerful elements of Mexican society. They do have a dream of going to a university education, of being able to have doctors and surgeons and gynecologists that are well-trained at a, at a at a world level. At this moment, what they find and what they say is that when they send somebody to the university in the city, they never come back. They lose their children when they send them away. So a, a lot of the emotionality of the schools is trying to make sure that when kids are educated in these schools, they're not educated to leave their communities. They're not educated to leave behind their language and their culture, but that they become an integral part of the society in which they live. So that after secondary school, one of the big choices is whether they're going to stay with the education system and become an educational promoter at elementary or secondary level, or whether they're going to move into the other real big system, which is the health system, where, you know, they're, they're, they're doing blood tests, they do simple surgeries, they do a lot of things in the big hospital up at Oventique, and they're continuing to conquest new elements of knowledge within that system. Likewise, in the agroecology system, which is now including animal husbandry and food forest and carbon sink farming at very sophisticated levels, kids can also move into those levels. They also have a whole bunch of businesses where their math skills in the 10 bay system of Mexico is challenged because they're doing inventories and they're doing, they might be making boots, they might be sending boots to Germany, they might be processing coffee to be sold in any of a half a dozen countries, they might be making artesanias. And there's a lot of these businesses, usually of a collective nature, usually not focused primarily on profits, but focused on community renewal and keeping the viability of the community intact at, at the center of the educational project is, is always what they work for in the Zapatista education system. I'm curious to know about possible other similar indigenous educational projects that the Zapatistas might have borrowed ideas from that you, you might be aware of that might, well, date prior perhaps to the, the Zapatista school system. The, the issue of what are the influences in the Zapatista system are, are, are a little bit fraught because the government is constantly conquesting the terms and the processes that they put on the table and trying to say either it's coming from an evil, bad 
communist Marxist Leninist armed place, or it's just so innocuous that it doesn't make any difference anyway. In fact, the Zapatistas in some ways have thrown themselves open to the world. They've gotten internet access in their centers. They've trained people in computers. The Zapatista film festivals that have recently been happening were early done with just single films up in Oventique. And now there are whole film festivals that open up the whole world to the imagination of these um, very creative indigenous people. The influences are broad and the influences are big. All you got to do is read a little bit of Don Dorito, the Lacondon Jungle, one of the, the Jiminy Cricket of Subgobernante Marcos, that is his little conscience and telling him that he's got to get out there and conquest the world. The influences are, are from all over the place and have been swallowed whole by the Zapatistas, particularly in these very large gatherings that have happened in Sedesi, this University of the Land, which is in outside of San Cristobal and is now actually one of the Zap official Zapatista centers. These big meetings have brought together hundreds and hundreds of academics and theater people and musicians and artists to share directly with the Zapatista base their most advanced ideas. That influence has become extremely diverse and, and has permeated, I think, everything in even the most out-of-the-way tiny little communities somewhere deep in the rainforest. Could you tell us of any other similar um, autonomous education projects that you're aware of that are, you know, somewhat similar to the, the Zapatista Autonomous Education Project? At, at Schools for Chapas, we've been very, very involved in Zapatista education since 94. But our, our history actually comes from a little further back where many of us worked in Nicaragua, helping the Nicaraguans construct schools and think about curriculum, which put us directly in contact, of course, with Cuban volunteers who came to Nicaragua and talked a lot about Cuban education. And likewise, many of us with the Schools for Chapas are quite active in our teachers' unions, particularly the National Education Association of the U.S., and we have carried out a number of school projects in liberated South Africa. After the ANC took over, the South African Democratic Teachers Union played a really important role in bringing indigenous groups of South Africa into the mainstream of Zapatista education, even though under apartheid they were horribly repressed and had no space at all within society. And it was, in fact, watching that process and putting us, which also put us in contact with many Australians who came to Chapas because they had heard about a similarity between the Zapatistas and some of their Aboriginal peoples. Um, so we came to understand that apartheid actually was invented in Australia and exported to South Africa in Israel um, and started to get an idea of social change within an educational setting. Likewise, the experience of our 50th state in the U.S., Hawaii, which is an indigenous country that was conquested by the U.S., in the last several decades has actually revived the Hawaiian language 
of the indigenous language of Hawaii in very creative ways, including in particular the kindergarten language nest, where at a kindergarten levels, kids learn a language like a kid learns a language in a very lively, real way. And it has been those kindergarten language nests which have actually ignited a complete revival of the Hawaiian language, which is having profound social change on that on that island. So your your organization, Schools for Chiapas, what type of work is it involved in today? You know, Schools for Chiapas is a organization which involves many people in many languages in many countries, all of which are focused on supporting Zapatista education and the process of Zapatismo. We have a very strong online presence. Our webpage is schoolsforchapas.org. We also have a thing called Gifts of Change, which is our entity which provides a lot of support for Zapatistas and for Zapatista education. We recently made about an $8,000 donation to the Zapatista education system. We managed to raise $90,000. And on September 1st of last year, we gave that to the Zapatista healthcare system. So during the pandemic, we actually have greatly increased our fundraising ability and have been able to provide a new level of resources for the movement there. We have recently started travel again in Chiapas and are working with the Fry Bartholomew Center to get human rights observers on the ground in Chiapas. And um, we have a thing called Mother Seeds and Resistance, which is providing plants and trees and other forms of life for free into Zapatista and other autonomous communities. So we're a big group and we'd love to have people join us as volunteers or as advisors. Just look us up, www.schoolsforchapas.org. I was wondering what would you think are the main challenges that face um, the Zapatista autonomous educational system today? I think that the, um, the pandemic which shut down the system a year ago and pushed the communities into a very, very strict quarantine and, and study of ways to control this virus fundamentally disrupted life in Chiapas like it has everywhere else on the planet. And the reality that now in Chiapas, as in so many places in the world, there are urban centers where the center of the urban area has a, some number of people vaccinated, but they're surrounded all around by non-vaccinated people, and the virus is clearly going to come back. It appears that the powers that be are not going to eliminate it. This is a fundamental challenge to the Zapatista education system. Likewise, the heat and the dryness which is coming up with the refugees from Panama, from El Salvador, from Honduras, is drying up water systems all over Chiapas. Many Zapatista schools had built their own water system. Water came out of a little spring and was somehow piped into a big tank and then put into pipes and would flow all through the community. Those little springs that are drying up all over, the big tanks aren't getting filled up. Maybe there's a wet spot and they're having to dig a well and pull it out by buckets. But fundamental challenge of climate changing and the fact that you know, we're looking at shifting 500 miles south, which means many of the ecosystems that are fundamental to 
the highlands and the lowlands of Chiapas are actually going to come down in the next couple decades, and they're going to have to be replaced by something else, I think presents not just the Zapatista education system, but actually all of indigenous people with um, some very, and all of us as, as humans, with some very stark realities that we have to start grappling with. That's true. We, we're, all, we're all facing some climate climate change issues, but they're always in the first line facing the harder ones. Well, I wanted to ask you finally, because this podcast we, we put together to try to focus as well on what kind of lessons we can learn here in, in Ireland or people elsewhere from the Zapatista autonomous, well, in this case, education experience. What, what do you think would be the, the main lessons that you take away from your experience? Well, you know, I, I've never been to Ireland. I, I wish I, I wish I could go to Ireland. I named my kid Aaron Gobra because <laughs> the rebel Irish gene is really important, I think, in, in the planet and has been for a very long time. You know, the resistance of Ireland to the colonial power powers that have held it for so many centuries is not dissimilar to the reality of the Chapin people who have been colonized for not quite as long as Ireland, but for at least 500 years. And the fact that the fact that they've gone into resistance and that they have nurtured their anger and created a rage which is both dignified and powerful, and the fact that the education system is one of the, the key channels for that rage and that resistance to exist is, I think, hopeful in the planet today. And as far as lessons we can learn as, as teachers and parents and human beings is that you can't ask permission to be free. You have to you have to take your freedom and you have to do it with respect and humanity and with all of the the resources we have at our command as a species right now and see if we can somehow get ourselves back together with Mother Earth and have something which is is reasonable that our grandkids will be able to to survive with. Well, I'd like to thank you, Peter, um, for a brilliant chat, and you've you've a wealth of experience there. So it's been it's been super interesting, and maybe we'll get back to you soon with some more questions. <laughs> thank you. Sounds good. Maybe in Chiapas. There you go. Thanks, Emil. Well, my chat with Peter has made me question our national education systems all the more, especially now being a mother and wondering what will traditional schools fill my children's heads with. The Sabatista experience shows us how fundamental an autonomous educational system is to building the society we want, with the values we believe in, and for the sake of planetary and our own survival. It's not easy, but we've got to make a start somewhere. There are many good examples to work from, like the Sabatistas and many others. I hope this episode has inspired you as much as me. Todos los estudiantes, los empleados consecuentes, las mujeres sin salario, porque esto ya comenzó y nadie lo va a parar, porque esto ya comenzó y nadie lo va a parar. Las mujeres no se enseñan la consigna verdadera, cuando una mujer se avanza no hay hombre que retroceda, porque esto ya comenzó. Y nadie lo va a parar, 
Ayer nació un caracol, un caracol, un caracol, un caracol de guerra. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find a list of related links and resources in our show notes for this episode. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach us at Galway Feminist Collective on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and also via our email address, galwayfeministcollective at gmail.com. 